Hey folks, just a small heads up. If you're going to listen to this podcast episode on headphones, it actually sounds a bit better on a speaker without headphones due to a small technical error on my part. Thanks. This is Jason Albert, and you're listening to Nordic Nation from Faster Skier. Back in the spring of 2013, U.S. biathlon skier Joanne Reed was at the proverbial fork in the road. Pursue academics after graduating with an applied mathematics degree from the University of Colorado or compete as a high-level cross-country skier. Reed was coming off a collegiate season where she had won the NCAA 15-kilometer freestyle championship. It turns out Reed, who becomes 25 on June 28th, is near completion for a master's in engineering. And as it turns out, she also pursued Nordic sport as a biathlete at the highest level. In this episode, we'll hear Reed explain why she chose biathlon over straight-up cross-country skiing and why she's willing to forego the PhD for the time being. To start off, can I get you to introduce yourself and how old are you? I'm Joanne Reed. I'm 24, and in one week, I will be 25. And I think maybe that's where you're posting, but maybe some training photos. And it looks to me, I can't imagine you're in Moab. I think you're in Colorado, but it looks like it might be around like the Colorado National Monument or something. Mm -hmm. Is that where you're based right now? Yeah, I'm in Western Colorado, which is the Uncompadre Desert. So that's the same desert that encompasses Utah, Moab, that area. So it's the same same sort of rocks you'll see in the pictures, those famous red rocks in Utah, or the Grand Junction, Grand Mesa area near the National Monument, Fruta, that area. It seems to be maybe an, an atypical training place for a Nordic skier. So why did you choose that environment? Two reasons. So I'm actually still in Colorado because I'm still working on my thesis and trying to finish by December which is out of the University of Colorado. So it necessitates me being in Colorado at some point. And I found that Western Colorado is actually much easier for me to train because at least Mesa County is is framed by the desert. And the desert, you can actually just go out into and shoot, which is kind of astonishing to me, having come from Boulder and living there for the last eight years. So... You are perfectly welcome to, and you see people doing this all the time with large caliber guns, walk out there, check the area, and then just start shooting at any old tree or bush or rock. Is that sort of your MO? I mean, are you a little more organized about your shooting? Like, do you go out with a target? And, or are you like, okay, there's a really small rock out there about roughly the distance for, you know, that a biathlon target would be in the same size, like a quarter, and you <laughs> start shooting <laughs> no I always I always bring a target I have a target and that's fairly portable and um, you just want to always have a biathlon target so that you have the same consistent sight picture which is really important for biathlon you have a, a white target and a black circle and that black circle is a specific size so if you were shooting at a rock or a bush or a rabbit whatever it may be you wouldn't really be practicing the correct thing you would be practicing something and maybe some things that are helpful, but you wouldn't be getting the complete training. So you really do want to do it correctly and put out targets at the appropriate distance, appropriate height, and appropriate size. 
for other aspiring biathletes who want to move to Western Colorado, like having, I, I spent a decade in Boulder and having driven past that area quite a bit. It seems like if I'm heading towards Moab and I've just gone past, what's the, what is the town where they like grow apricots? It's not, it's before, oh, way before. Palisades? Yeah, Palisades. Palisade? Mm-hmm. So you're, you're past Palisades, it seems like. Yeah, so I'm in Grand Junction right now. Okay, so because um, it seems like in between Palisades and Grand Junction, if you're heading towards Moab, which would be west, on your right-hand side of the car, there, there looks like lots of places where you could just go shoot. Yeah, that's pretty much it. And then that desert extends you know, north, that whole section, and then it extends all the way west of Grand Junction. And it's basically just, it's a free-for-all. You know, you just take your truck out there if you have one, and you just rally right off the road until you find your favorite spot (laughs) and do you ever get any looks or is it fairly secluded like other folks out there shooting and here's this woman you know (laughs) who's maybe coming off a long run or bike ride or whatever with a biathlon rifle so when i'm just out in the desert i don't get a lot of weird looks because there are much bigger weirdos than me i'd like to think but what i usually do is head up to the um There's a range just north of town that the Colorado Bureau of Land Management owns, and it's free. It's free access, and they have flat ground and 50-meter markers, so that's a little bit easier because you can just set up your target. You know it's 50 meters, and then you can set a pro mat on the ground. And I get a lot of weird looks for training there, putting my rifle down, and then going for a run. (laughs) People think that's totally bizarre. You are currently, like, what is your status as a student? Are you finishing up your master's degree or have you actually started to work on a PhD? I'm finishing up my master's degree in engineering. I'm totally done with class. I just have to finish my thesis. And I don't want to expand on that because I'm just in the process of finishing the paperwork and I'm afraid I might jinx myself. So until it's finalized, I don't want to say anything about, yes, I'm definitely doing this, but hopefully, 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 because this has been a long process for me in a two-year program that has now extended to four years, hopefully we'll be done by December. And are you someone who is contemplating mixing, you know, World Cup biathlon skiing with pursuing a PhD or is that something you'll put on a back burner for the next few years to see how this the skiing plays out? Um, I think that I'm a person that likes to do whatever I pick. I like to do it well and I think that a master's degree is one thing but a PhD is something wholly different. It's very all-encompassing and very difficult and I think for you to attempt both of those at the same time unless you are in a very specific field, or you are a very specific person, which I'm not sure is me, you're just going to end up doing both of those things less well than you could have. So I would hope to finish my athletic career and then pursue a PhD. Maybe in that block, I would do some other kind of schooling, do some other kind of master's, but I don't think I'm ready to initiate going for a PhD just because of the, the mental strain that would take and that would end up taking away from training. And racing, of course. You know, some people might be familiar with your story. You grew up, uh, I think, in Palo Alto. Mm-hmm. Went to see you for school. Yep. I skied with them on full scholarship 
uh, for four years. I came when I was 17 and I graduated when I was 20. From your perspective, how did your college skiing go? I loved it. I know there's a lot of controversy over whether or not it should be allowed to bring in these older Europeans into the college scene because it is the American college scene. But for me, I learned a lot from them. Um, it, it was really helpful just to be able to push myself into another level by having those amazing skiers already at the university, already training there and getting to compete with them and train with them and that sort of thing. So I personally am really, really grateful to all of the European skiers that came over and wanted to live in a foreign country and compete in a foreign country. And for me, that was really amazing and really helpful. And I think really shot my skiing farther forward than it would have otherwise been. There was an article in Faster Skier written a few years ago that I think it was your right after your you graduated or maybe just after your senior year NCAAs. And you just were kind of unsure about where your skiing was going to go and how to navigate what the rest of your life would bring, at least in your 20s. How would you now describe your attitude about skiing when you were deciding what path you were going to take and what's your attitude about skiing now? And maybe they're the same. Skiing as opposed to biathlon or Nordic as a, as a general idea? Nordic as a general idea. So presumably either way, had you gone into biathlon or had you stayed in cross country, you have to dedicate your life or at least part of your life to lots of training and fidelity to a certain lifestyle, I suppose. Does that make sense? Yeah. I guess I found myself wholly uninterested in pursuing a career fully in cross-country skiing specifically. And that was due to a bunch of small reasons that ended up pooling into a, a larger piece that made me not want to do it. And biathlon didn't have almost all of those pieces. So for me, the road I wandered down was like all these signs. It was just one after another pointing this direction. And at the end of that, that road, there was a split and it said grad school or biathlon kind of. And I sort of ended up doing both. Although really the focus was on biathlon and my graduate school went slower and slower and slower. But I think as an independent skier, and I know there are people that do this, and I have incredible respect for them, people that just, they don't really have a club, they don't really have a team, and somehow they do it anyway. But for me, that was just totally insurmountable. And it wasn't the training, it was the travel and the waxing, and how much that waxing matters, and how you can't just show up to a ski race and have no one to wax your skis. So that was, it basically just set my ski career completely out if I wanted to be an independent skier. And I wanted to be an independent skier because I wanted to keep going to school, even if it wasn't full-time school or maybe it wasn't all-encompassing school, but I wanted to keep learning things. So I actually took a year off. Okay. And, then, and then the year that I, I skied for one more year, after, I competed for one more year after that. I probably started training in, it's somewhere between September and November. 
um, for the January U.S. Nationals, which were the qualifiers for U23s in Kazakhstan. So the turnover for that was really fast, and I had been off of ski training for probably a year and a half mm-hmm. at that point. And you did go to Kazakhstan, I believe. I did go to Kazakhstan. How did you, at that senior nationals where, you know, there were lots of skiers vying for limited spots, how, did, how and you were presumably an independent skier, how did you manage your skis? Um, actually, my college coach, Bruce Cranmer, waxed my skis for, I think, the first couple races. And then my parents actually flew out and waxed my skis because Houghton, Michigan is actually where I lived until I was eight. So they have friends there and, you know, they've been there. And it was an opportunity for them both to visit their friends and to help me a little bit. So they came out and did my skis for the rest of the week. They obviously did a pretty good job, it sounds like. (laughs) I guess so. I mean, I don't remember what was on them, but it worked out. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Um, And I'm curious, what was your calculus and, and what drew you into biathlon? It actually all began at that U.S. Nationals in Houghton, Michigan. So I was sitting there, and I was staying with this couple, um, the Oplagers, who are very close friends of my parents and had been growing up. And I was staying at their house, and they are huge biathlon fans. So they would watch the replays of the biathlon races um, every night. And I had actually never seen a biathlon race until that point, except for, you know, the club races they had at Truckee and Tahoe. And so that was my first real exposure to biathlon as a sport. And I thought it was really cool. And and that I didn't really think anything more of it. And I was actually really quite unhappy at nationals because I was so unfocused. I didn't really know what I was doing there or what the next step would be. I mean, at, at this point, I was under 23. I could go to U23s, but there was no logical next step for me because I didn't really want to be an elite skier. And I think this is one of the big misconceptions about me is I've never been an elite skier. I didn't come from elite skiing. You know, I never raced the super tour circuit or did any of that sort of thing or raced as an elite skier. I only did junior skiing and then college skiing. So I was kind of dead ending I think. And so then I went on to this Kazakhstan trip and I wasn't exactly sure what to do with myself. And I figured I I trained for this trip. I qualified for this trip. I should do the Opa Cup trip as well, because otherwise I have no idea what races I should even be targeting. And it's really hard for me to show up to a race because I don't even want to wax my skis. So I signed up for the Opa Cup trip as well. And what I came to realize which I didn't realize coming from Western collegiate skiing is that half of the races in Nordic skiing are sprints. And I'm not very good at sprinting. And there are two reasons for that. One is I don't train for sprints. And I'm I'm sure I could have changed that, but I just didn't because I was coming from Western collegiate skiing in which you don't have to train for sprints. So I hadn't done a sprint in probably six years. And the other problem is that my mind doesn't work in this competitive way. So if you put me on the line in the heat with five other women, I didn't actually care if they beat me, which is basically totally damning in sprinting. Like there's no way around that. You have to have some competitive drive or you're not going to succeed in heats. So 
that was another little sign. It was like, well, you have to do 50% of your races as sprinting if you're going to pursue this career. And that wasn't looking awesome to me. And then I don't have a particular affinity for classic skiing. I'll do it and I can do a 5K, but I'm not particularly good at it, I wouldn't say. And I like to skate much more. So that was another sign. And it was all these things, and I thought they were pointing me right out of skiing. And then, as some people are really familiar with, my grandfather was diagnosed with early-onset Alzheimer's. And what was his name? His name is Jack Hyden, and that's my mother's father. And he had actually acquired a biathlon rifle at the age of, you know, 70 or 75. You know, not, he, not when he was young, but when he was a master. And so... He, obviously, with dementia, couldn't be allowed possession of a firearm. So that passed to my mother, and then that rifle passed to me because I was basically the only cross-country skier in that side of the family. And so I had this rifle. I had this skiing ability. I had this tendency to like to skate and like to do distance, and I had no inclination to be an elite skier. So basically, I was exactly the sort of person that U.S. Biathlon was looking for, only I didn't know it, and they didn't know about me. And I can't exactly remember who called who or where the chain of communication went, but at some point, I ended up meeting Bernd Eisenbichler, who's the chief of sport of U.S. Biathlon, and Max Cobb at the Colorado Springs Olympic Training Center, and they said, we would love for you to come to the Olympic Training Center and train and we'll teach you how to biathlon. And I said, no, no, I want to go to, I want to go to this roller ski biathlon race. And they said, no, 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 you need to learn to biathlon before you can show up at the biathlon race. So I was like, okay, okay, fine. I guess I can learn to do it first. So I showed up at the Olympic Training Center. Um, I worked with the development coach and everything sort of fell into place for me from there. Like they were very excited to help me. I was very excited to meet them. They gave me so much opportunity and they gave me so much help. And I progressed extremely fast because I really, really like to shoot. If you would just let me stand in the range all day, I would stand there and shoot all day. I freaking love it. I think it's really fun. So all of that just pulled together. And eventually I basically just found myself being an elite biathlete without ever having really planned for it or intentionally set upon the journey. It was just that I was there. I was doing it. I was at IBU Cup. I was at World Cup. And then I was on the U.S. biathlon team. And it was just this enormous whirlwind that was just a chain of things happening without me really realizing it until I was there. Where, where is your granddad's rifle now? Do you still use that or is that just you know set aside at this point so i do i still have my grandfather's rifle and the one i'm using now or i used last year is my father's rifle actually and it's a little bit lighter and that has its advantages and disadvantages because it's easier to ski with but it's harder to shoot so at this point i'm still deciding actually which one i want to go forward into the season with but um my stock it does have a lot of carbon fiber on it (laughs) I, I took a question that you had responded to when you did like these 17 questions or something like that. Um, and it's very out of context, but it was talking about um, 
what you sort of owed the biathlon coaches and, you know, since they had taken you on and you were going to work on some things and work work on technique and you were going to try and have skate technique, quote, that doesn't look like a speed skater taught me to ski. <laughs> Who did teach you to ski and who's the speed skater? Um, my mom taught me to ski and she is an Olympic speed skater. She competed actually in Lake Placid in 1980. So that's been pretty cool to be based out of the Olympic Training Center in Lake Placid, right where she competed. But speed skaters who then learn to ski do have their own style, I would say. It's very low to the ground (laughs) and very legs heavy. So I think that was the style I basically had for the first 23 years of my life. It's a long time. (laughs) That's a lot of sort of neuronal connections to undo. Mm-hmm. How did you go about doing that? You know, I have a really easy time picking up technique taught to me by these coaches. I don't know if it's I communicate well with them or there are a bunch of different coaches and they all say it in a different way or if it's something innate in me, I'm not really sure. But since I've started working with them, I like to think my technique's gotten a lot better and they've all been pretty pleased with just how fast I pick up what they're saying or trying to say and then do it. Um, I think a lot of that is visual. So I spend a lot of time just watching our men and Lowell in particular is always, always, always working on his technique. So he's always skiing at a very high technical level and just to be able to watch him all the time it, it really, it sticks in your mind. And then I think after a while you can start to do it. You know, how have your parents, maybe your mom specifically influenced your decisions and your just career in sport? Ah, so I think that is a much different answer than most people would expect. So my mom is a two sport world champion. She is an Olympic medalist. She is an incredible athlete in her own right. But on the other side of that, she is an engineer. She bought by degree. She has a master's degree in engineering and she loves building things. She loves playing with hardware and that sort of thing. And my dad does too. So actually my parents are the driving force behind all of the changes in my stock. They're incredible woodworkers. They're incredible carbon fiber workers they're very innovative and they're very technically brilliant. So if I need anything, you know, I'm like, okay, this piece is, is wobbly and I want it extended four inches to the left because that's where I want my hand. I basically can go home to my parents' house and be guaranteed that that piece is built, it's sound, it's solid, and I have it and I'm on to the next thing, which is unbelievably valuable in biathlon. I grew up in an era when Eric Hyden and Beth Hyden, I had a brother who followed cycling. I mean, these were people on the television constantly, if you followed certain sports, and even just like Wide World of Sports, I think it was called. You know, your uncle, I imagine, Eric Hyden, you know, in a place like Lake, Lake Placid is immortal. Mm-hmm. You know, having grown up in an environment like that, Although there may have been no overt pressure, was there sort of a like, wow, there are some big academic and athletic expectations here? I would say, at least from my, my parents' side, 
the expectation was always academic first. So there was an understanding that you would train and you would perform and you would do the best you could, but at the same time, your academics did always come first in my family. Um, but as I have mentioned before, I really do think that coming from that family, our understanding of just the, the level of training appropriate for certain ages was just much higher. I think, and I, and I don't know globally across the U.S., you know, because I was from a very small pocket of California. And even in that, I was very isolated on the far west side of California from all the other skiers. But just referencing, say, my high school running team, for example, that the amount of training I was doing and the caliber of training I was doing, even from the age of like 12, 13, 14, was much higher than most people, just because there was already an understanding of how to do that, how to do that specifically for a sport and that sort of thing. So a lot of people, I think, have to figure it out as they go along. And I basically got to start somewhere in the middle. You were named to what I think is called the A3 team. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Okay. So, so what exactly is the A3 team and what does that mean in terms of support uh, for this season? Um, so U.S. Biathlon is totally awesome. They support all of their national team members, A, X, uh, wherever you are in there. You're guaranteed residency at the Olympic Training Center. So I have full-time residency at the Olympic Training Center. That means that I can go there and stay there for free. I can eat there for free. I can train there for free. I don't pay for my ammunition, all that sort of thing. The difference between a1, A2, and A3 is just a, a qualification level, and it's, it's written into the rules. And if I remember correctly, A2 means you have two top 25s in the World Cup, and A1 is maybe two top 15s, and there's something in there for relays also. And that, if you qualify for A1 and A2, is just a monetary stipend that you get. And sometimes it'll be little pieces that are different, like maybe you get an extra pair of poles or you get an extra half hour of sports recovery massage or whatever that may be. But all of the national team athletes are given health insurance. Um, all of the World Cup athletes get skis from our sponsors, and that's all done through our chief of sport, who is the most incredible, most organized, awesome person on the face of the earth. You know, he's he's got our our ski sponsors going, our, our boot sponsors going, our pole sponsors going, and all of that. And he sorts through all of that. I don't know how he does what he does, but we basically... And who is that? That's Bernd Eisenbickler. I guess being named to the A3 team, was that something you were expecting after last season? Um, I guess so. I mean, the A3 and the X team aren't hugely different from the U.S. biathlon standpoint. So... Those two sets of athletes, they both get certain benefits at the Olympic Training Center and residency status and that sort of thing. It's mostly just a difference in coaching on whether you have the development coach or the women's coach. Um, but I think to the face of the world, that's very different, whether or not you're on A team or whether or not you're on X team. So if you're trying to get sponsors, just the name of your team can be fairly important. And that to me has been the biggest difference really in the sense that you're approaching potential sponsors and 
you know, they're asking, okay, where are you in the pipeline? And it's like, okay, I'm on the A team. You're seeing a, a greater willingness to pony up, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, because the A team is, you know, seen as the elite team, the the best part of the national team. And then when you say you're on the X team, people go, the what? You know, they don't really know what that is. And even people, even in Nordic skiing, which is a really closely related sport, don't even know what that is. I didn't know what it is until I started biathlon. You know, I had no idea that there was even a team attached to the national team that was just for development. And it is a fairly recent thing. I think it's maybe only three or four years old that they have this team. Um, you did have a top 30 on the World Cup last year, early in the season. Um, can mm-hmm. you describe a little bit about that and how did that affect you? Um, that was... And I'm not going to swear here, but it was a little bit of a cluster. You can swear. <laughs> it was totally chaotic. Um, the wind was howling through the range. Everything was happening uh, across the board. I was standing in the starting pen. I was a really late starter because I didn't have any sort of cedar ranking. And I watched basically all of the favorites come in and miss three, four, five targets, which is totally unheard of. And this was in the individual in which you get a minute penalty per shot. So what's the venue? This was Ostersund, Sweden, which is apparently really famous for wind. This is the first time I've ever been there. Okay. And I know off the top of my head, the men's individual, I think is 20 K. What's the women's case or the women's distance? So the women's is is 15K. So it's a 3K loop and you shoot four times. And for every miss, there's a minute penalty. So for the most part, people tend to slow down in the range and just take the time to really make sure that they hit the targets. But in this particular race, people were slowing down because it was so windy and then they were missing anyway. So by the time I went off, it was basically, you know, the door was wide open for a performance or if I missed every single target, I wouldn't have been the only person to do that. So there was basically no pressure on me to do anything. It was the first world cup race of the season and off I went out of the gate and the wind didn't happen to be as bad for me as it was for a lot of people. And did you pretty much gun it in terms of your pacing since you felt like, you know, other people had missed and so it wouldn't necessarily be, other folks were coming in with three, four minutes of penalty time? You know, I totally didn't. Um, I had only raced, I think, one individual before this. It was actually my first World Cup race ever, uh, the year before in Ruppolding, Germany. So I, I still wasn't super clear on how to pace it. I'd never raced at this course before. And I thought, well, maybe if I come in at a slightly lower heart rate, even if it takes me 59 seconds more to ski the loop, if I hit that one more target, I'm going to come out ahead. And because at this point, and even still, I was a very new shooter, very new biathlete, I just can't hold, or I couldn't at that time, hold as high of a heart rate as a lot of the veterans could. So I, I decided that it was going to be really advantageous for me to ski just a tiny bit slower and see if I could make that up on the range. And that happened to work out for me that day, certainly isn't a plan that always works out. How did you feel about the rest of your, this past season? Uh, um, 
everyone keeps asking me this. <laughs> I just, I still haven't found a good answer. I think you obviously can always do better. And there were pieces of things that I got totally right. So in world champs, I shot a top 20 standing range time and claimed, I think it was maybe in Finland, I shot a top 20 prone time and cleaned and I had a couple top course times but I still at a point where I can't always put all those pieces together and that it takes time and it takes time to develop and the sport is so complicated and has so many moving parts that that's just the way it is you know but when you can see all those pieces and you can see that some days you have some of them and some days you have other ones of them and you don't have all of them it can be just it's not even frustrating is not even the word. It's just like, it's just out of reach and you can just almost see it and you want it so bad. But the more you want something like that, the less likely it is going to come to you because shooting is such a delicate mental sport. So at this point I can, I can see all the pieces and I have, I have the ski speed and it's there and I have the shooting speed and it's there and I have the accuracy and it's there, but I, Feel like maybe I had one or two races that it all actually happened at the same time. Making the assumption that you're a fairly logical human being, you know, having been a mathematician and getting a master's degree in, in engineering, and having just said you see all these moving parts and on some occasions everything aligns perfectly, and there's this kind of you know perfect performance. And other times it's one piece that's moving that that's really dialed. Um, you know, I'm just trying to figure out how your brain might try and approach moving into this next coming year and figuring out how to make those moving pieces work more consistently. Well, actually, it's it's interesting because I, I do have the rational part of my brain, which does all the math and those sorts of things. But in general, I'm a really laid back person. And um, I think that has been really advantageous for biathlon and for shooting. And I don't tend to worry too much about this kind of thing. Or if I missed half my targets, which happened to me in Norway in the last race of the season, I just, I don't worry too much about it because I know it happens to everyone. And a lot of times you don't even know why that was. So I think at this point, it's just a matter of of engaging in a race the same way you do with skiing, but obviously with that extra shooting component, you know, you don't go into your race and turn your brain off. You you go into a race and you you work on your transitions, you work on the technical aspects and you do everything you can in the skiing, and then you come into the shooting and you go through the same kind of ideas but with shooting. And you know, you work on all the technical aspects of whatever it may be that you had to work on. You're, you're always doing sight picture, trigger control, follow through, and then you're out of the range and you're skiing again. And as long as you get out there and you do your job and you're focusing on what you should be focused on, I think that should be enough for anyone. And maybe those pieces fall together and maybe they don't, but at some point they will. You know, you were at World Championships and part of a team where Lowell won a gold and Susan won a silver. Um, you know, how did that impact you? That was that was totally unreal. To be frank, I cried for both of them when they won for probably an hour each. And just to be part of their story, to get to be there, to be part of that journey on in this group of people 
that, you know, this, this biathlon team and association that has given me so much already and to see them already being so successful in one of my first years is just, it's, it's unreal. And, um, it's cool because I can be really excited for them and to see how they do in the Olympics, but there's no pressure on me because that's, that's Lowell and Susan that everyone expects to do things. And we're all like watching with bated breath. But for me, it's just kind of, I'm just along for the ride, you know? Well, being along just for the ride, I mean, you are obviously, they've invested in you and you are investing in them and, and this journey. You know, what is your assessment of where you stand as a biathlete? I mean, you're not a rookie anymore, but I'm guessing that you, you don't consider yourself an expert or veteran, I suppose. So where do you stand or what's your perception about where you stand as a biathlete? Um, standing on my own two skis, I guess. <laughs> I, I think there's... Um, there's always something more to learn. And I am the first person to admit that I don't know everything. And that's, that's why you have shooting experts and shooting coaches and skiing coaches and, and wax techs. And so no matter who you are or what level you're at, you can always, always be better. And I think that's the perspective that I approached my biathlon career with. So no matter where I am, in performance-wise, I always feel like I can be better, no matter what. Anything that you're specifically working on this this season and the off-season for the upcoming World Cup and Olympics? It is a lot of trying to put those pieces together, um, that, that speed that I have and the accuracy that I have, but I don't always have them at the same time, which can be really frustrating. Um, I've worked a lot on ski technique and advancing technically because that's been something that I just haven't really worked on in the past. So I think that has been progressing a lot farther than I expected. So I think some pieces of my skiing will be stronger than they have been previously. And and I, of course, imagine that all of my progress would be in shooting because that tends to be how skiers approach biathlon they think well I have this part already done and now I'm just going to learn to shoot which isn't really at all the case but um it's 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 hard to turn that off because you you spent so long only skiing so I think I did progress a lot in some parts of my ski technique that were pretty weak before because they'd been stagnant and then um I mean just to be around Susan and to get to see her progression from one of the slowest shooters to one of the fastest, often the fastest shooter in the field, really just turns that switch on you really wanting to get there too. So I've definitely been trying to accelerate that shooting just even just the tiniest bit more, just because it's been so cool to see where her shooting has taken her. And also because it's really, really fun to do it fast. What, what are your main goals uh, for the upcoming season and how much longer do you think you might pursue biathlon? Uh-huh. Um, so this is something that I, I feel like is often um, 
almost required of athletes is that people assume they're, they're very goal-oriented people and they wake up in the morning with goals. And I really don't. Um, I've never been a goal-oriented person. I also don't like to wake up in the morning. I'm definitely not a morning person. For me to look at a season and assign it goals in, in the manner that most, most people do is, it feels very wrong to me and very artificial and very fake. So a lot of times I've, I've had to do the goal writing exercise and I will do it because someone asks it of me, but it's not what I feel is representative of how I look at my career. And there are, there are pieces of that that are goals. Like my first year of biathlon, I really wanted to make the IBU Cup team. But then I wouldn't say I had any specific trajectory or plan beyond that. It was just that I wanted to hit this certain checkpoint and then see how it went from there. And that's sort of how I've approached my entire biathlon career. Um, I think it's really fun. I think it's really awesome. Um, I love being a part of this community that has given me so much. And as long as it is fun and it is engaging, I'm going to keep doing it. And when it stops being that, when, the, when for whatever reason I don't find joy in it, that's when I'm going to be done. People would describe you maybe as carefree or you would describe yourself as carefree and less regimented. I think most people would associate World Cup skiers, U.S. ski team skiers, Super Tour skiers, what have you, as being pretty regimented and rigid when it comes to training plan and lifestyle. You know, how do you balance all that? Just kind of being playful and carefree? That's a really good question. Um, and at, at some points in time, it can be really difficult. But I think a lot of um, that carefree nature does come from a, a deeper understanding of, of myself and how I feel on a particular day, which is probably something that has been taught to me from a very, very young age. So I consider myself a very fluid and adaptable person. And a lot of times I will change a workout just based on how I feel that day because I can feel that something isn't right or I'm not mentally engaged or for some reason that workout isn't the right workout for that moment, that terrain, that instance. So I do, I do take the training plan and I do take it very seriously just because I'm really trying to work within the U.S. biathlon system. But a lot of times I'll, I'll shuffle the pieces around in a way that is just a little more suited to me and whatever it is that I'm doing today. Like maybe I wanted to go out in the desert and shoot at some bunnies or whatever it may be. <laughs> <laughs> and they've been, they're very forgiving and have been very flexible with me and just like the way that my personality works. Because if I get thrown into a, a regimented scheme like that, basically my career will end very early because that's not the way that I engage with the world. And the instant that you do something that is so against your personality um, is, is, is when you're, you're basically, you're looking at the finish line already. So if I, if I did that, I wouldn't be able to continue in biathlon for any reasonable amount of time just because it, it would, it would kind of destroy my soul. So, so maybe it's like the public's perception of how being on the world cup manifests, but do you find that it actually 
there's room for people who are, you know, I think you use the word like fluid to describe yourself or just a little more spontaneous. Is there room for that? I think definitely. I mean, I think it's a, it's a really odd thing that people see athletics as a career. And if you think about how many people that is, that's a lot of people. Athletics as a career necessitating that you are exactly one type of person. You are up at 7.30 in the morning, excited about your workout, you're screaming your daily goals out the window. You know, they have a very specific definition of what they think an athlete should be like. And I don't think that's at all the case. And I think it's especially in this interesting mix of people that ended up in U.S. biathlon, not the case. Um, And I don't know if that's a manifestation of just the type of person that ends up in biathlon in the U.S. because there's not a huge pool for it. There's not a huge draw. Or if it's something unique to the sport that it's such an odd juxtaposition of sports inherently that it just creates an odd sort of person that wants to keep doing that. But, you know, if, if you look at Claire, she's, she's highly educated. She's incredibly intelligent and she's just about as thrilled about mornings as I am, which is not the classic definition of an athlete. And then if you look at Susan, she's incredibly intelligent as well, would easily have been able to go for a PhD if that was the path she decided to do, but didn't. And she decided to take a different path on biathlon. She doesn't live in Lake Placid. She lives in Craftsbury. And that place doesn't have a paved range for roller skiing. So she can't roller ski and shoot. But for her, that was the most important piece that she'd be able to live there in her community in a place she felt most comfortable. So I think all of us have a little bit of a different um, perspective and personality than what is generally imagined to be the elite professional athlete. And I don't know if that's the case in all teams or it's this team. And, and I can't speak to that because this is the only one I've been a part of, but I really do feel like that representation of athletes is not totally accurate, especially in this case. Well, anything else that I should ask or anything else you'd want to include Oh my gosh. So I just went through the, this like horrible 10 page long Olympic questionnaire, which took me about four hours and had the most ridiculous questions on it. And I feel like I should pull one of those, except my answers. Yeah. What, what are some of those? Can you let us, what are some of those questions? Um, well, it had everything from what is your average day of training look like really standard to do you listen to K-pop because it's in Korea? And do you like Korean food? And then it it asked about your your sleep schedule, which for me was hilarious. People really, really fixate on my preferred sleep schedule as though I should be expelled from elite athletics for not being a morning person and preferring to sleep between 2 a.m. and noon. And I can't even count the number of interviewers that have been like, so, so how do you do this or why do you do this or what's wrong with you that you sleep like this? Well, there's lots of people. Yeah. I mean, I suppose there's lots of people who are on that circadian rhythm. Yeah. Um, 
But that said, if then you have to function with a, with a group of people who are not on that schedule, like yes. World Cups, I don't know what time, well, that might work out. I mean, they're televised, so World Cups may start in the afternoon, and that might work out great for you. Yes, afternoon races. This was another one of those small pieces that just sort of pointed my way into biathlon. Okay, it's perfect. So do you drink coffee? Like when you wake up at noon... How do you roll? Oh. Like, what is that? Oh, that this is like? this is such a oh difficult question for me. Oh, <laughs> so when I started shooting, it became apparent to me that, and this isn't the case for everyone, but when I get on caffeine, I shake. So I actually can't perform and be on caffeine, which was totally heartbreaking for me. I love coffee. I love coffee to the point where I drink decaf. Um, and, and yeah, I, I've, I've always functioned on coffee, and that I'm sure stems from my freshman year at Berkeley. I actually transferred to CU from Cal Berkeley in the, in the computer science department and just being so stressed out and overwhelmed that I didn't even have time to eat, really. I just drank a lot of coffee and studied and did my work and studied and did my work, and I basically didn't sleep at all. And um, so to come from, from that background... And then all of a sudden, basically realized that I had to cut caffeine out entirely was so freaking hard for me. So now I use it sort of sparingly sometimes, like if I have a time trial or an interval workout and it's skiing only, or if I want a particularly difficult challenge to my shooting, I will actually drink coffee because it will be more difficult for me to shoot and to perform. And that it just adds another layer of, of difficulty, almost in the same way that you do an interval for shooting instead of just coming in easy to the range. So I guess it went from a staple of my life into an interesting additive force. Wow. So did you go through the whole cycle of like headaches when you withdrew from that situation? Yes. Yes, absolutely. And I used to do this every year, actually, for college skiing. I would break my caffeine addiction um, before Christmas, and then I would only use it on race days in the season. And, and I would always go through the cycle of headaches, and it was the worst. I'm sure I was the most horrible, grouchy, angry person, and I would always be home at my parents' house because it would be Christmas break, and I'm sure my mom was like, oh, God, my crazy daughter's back in a weird mood. <laughs> but... um. So at least I was used to breaking that cycle, but that didn't make it any easier. And it doesn't make it any easier when there's the unlimited coffee machine at the Olympic Training Center right in front of me. And I know I shouldn't be drinking it, but I love coffee, so I want to drink it. It's really been a, a journey, I would say. Yeah, that actually sounds pretty, to be honest, very rough to me. <laughs> it's the It's the weirdest things that have thrown wrenches in my biathlon plan it's things like that that i would never have expected but you're clearly dedicated i think lesser people and i would include myself myself among them would fold i'd be like okay i'm taking the coffee and not the biathlon so good for you <laughs> you never know maybe next year that's what i'll decide <laughs> well don't do that because i don't want to be like the, the person that was the instigator here so no stick with it um, thanks for your time. Really a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Have a good one. Thanks for listening to Nordic Nation, and we hope you've had a good start to your summer.